a Pulp MX Network production. With your support of our sponsors, we have reached over 800 podcasts and counting. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, support your moto addiction by buying from our sponsors. It's the Steve Mathis Show on RacerX.com. Presented by Fox Racing. The original moto podcast. Featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the Motorcycle Superstore Racer X podcast. I'm Steve Mathis, of course, brought to you by MotorcycleSuperstore.com. They're a passionate team who speak moto from talking about going riding, bench racing, to the latest parts and gear. They've got it. They're the place for you to check out all things motorcycles with top brands and gear, accessories, tires, parts, and apparel. MotorcycleSuperstore.com, over 700 trusted brands. Use the code PB-PULP16 to get 10% off participating brands. We thank the guys from Motorcycle Superstore and Fox Racing. Foxhead.com. Visit your local authorized Fox dealer, the global innovation leader in motocross race where Kenny Roxon killing everybody right now wearing Fox gear. And uh, please, so check them out. Go to your local dealer, Foxhead.com for the latest and greatest from those guys. With me on the line, a guy, I can't believe we've never done one of these with him, and, and it's amazing. Because he's uh, he's done a ton of things, a world champion, a national champion, a 250 Supercross champion, um, all around great guy. He's the color commentator for the uh, Lucas Oil MA Pro Motocross Championships. He owns a, a motorcycle dealer. And uh, Grant Langston, what's up, GL? How are you? Hey, Steve. Great to be on. Thanks for the intro. I thought also former teammate of mine at KTM. There we go. There we go. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, the roots run deep, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in I was there in 2000, and you came to California. And, you know, we had our team. We just started up Cactu KTM. And they're like, hey, this kid's coming by the shop. He needs some parts. And you kept coming up with things that you were breaking, like wheels and clamps. And you're like, hey, can I get th-? And I'm like, beat it, kid. Like, get lost. I don't know who you are. I thought you were some <laughs> amateur kid. Meanwhile, you're like the world champion, you know. And uh, I'm like, oh, wait, he's actually really good. We should probably give him these, these parts he wants. <laughs> well, when I came over the first time, yeah, that was that was leading up to the year that I won the world title, mm-hmm. and um, I guess we didn't really know the procedure. But I had come over to just spend some time in the winter, and we got here and didn't get um, a whole lot of help. So we ended up ha- having to call Kurt Nickel and saying, "Hey, can can you get Austria to tell the U.S. you know just just to help us out?" Right. And the first person we talked to was Selvaraj Nariana. <laughs> And I still remember Sal asking me, tell me about yourself. I'm like, well, I'm a kid, I'm from Africa, and I'm living my dream. So it was kind of interesting, but um, it was cool because then once Kurt said, hey, make sure you just take care of this kid, you know, he's mm-hmm. one of ours. Yeah. Um, they helped out a lot, and uh, it was great just to come and it – was, it was a nice way almost just to kind of just test the waters, you know, just coming over and spending the winter. About two months. I basically spent December and January mm-hmm. over here – even though I was contracted to go back to, to Europe, usually what I would do is spend my, you know, the European winters in South Africa where it was summer because I could do motos in the heat so that by the time I got to Europe, I was pretty much in shape. I just worked on testing, right. which was also good for sprinting and interval stuff. Sure. Um, 
So it actually worked out good being able, and then so that the year before, so 99 leading into 2000, I came and spent two months over here. Also, knowing that kind of my long-term goal was to be over here and race Supercross, mm-hmm. I didn't think it would literally be the following year that I would be, you know, now testing and training for, you know, the 2001 season. Right. But I was quite happy when that opportunity came about. But it was nice, like I said, to get get a little bit of Supercross practice as well as a lot of outdoor riding. And because I had never been here, you know, the California tracks were really impressive. And right. just being able to go to a couple Supercross tracks that, that I was able to do, I'd never, ever seen a practice Supercross track. So it, it was nice because it went from I was scared to jump triples to the triples were no big deal, you know, by mm-hmm. the time it kind of came around. So it really did help, you know, break the ice. Yeah, it's uh, well, and you broke a lot of parts. I remember that. I remember us giving you a lot of parts. You must have been practicing a lot, or maybe those early KTM's weren't the greatest. Hey, what? Well, if- I think it was a combination of a few things. I think <laughs> one, I was crashing a lot. Two, maybe the parts were that durable. And three, I was riding a lot. You know, at that um, point in time. Imagine if you came over to America and your first person at KTM USA that you had to talk to was Moen, grumpy old Tom Moen. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been like, what? who's this guy? He would have been like, beat it, get get rid of your, I'm not giving I, you any parts. <laughs> he's still there now. He's oh, I know. Furniture. I know. Um, how's the dealership? How's everything going? Of course, Langston Motorsports and Lake Elsinore, uh, multi-line uh, dealership. How's it going? Um, I feel like, like from my end of things, uh, as far as me going to people and saying, hey, um, can you please uh, uh, give me some money to promote your company? Uh Four, five, six years ago, everyone was like, nope, nope, nope. You know, not selling anything. It's terrible. Uh, the industry's going under. Um, we're out of business, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like now in 2016, uh, maybe it's not back to the heyday, but I feel like as an industry, we're healthier. Do you see that with your dealership? Yeah, we're definitely healthier. I think, um, you know, depending on who you talk to and which part of the country and, you know, what, what lines they carry. Um, that the time frame may vary, but 2008 was really the big pullback. But our economy, meaning you know the motorcycle industry, um, actually suffered even more after that because the market was saturated. People were going under. You know there were bikes everywhere. I mean even mm-hmm. the manufacturers were trying to you know dump product. You know yeah. So it it it, it was a bit of a mess. You know 09 and 10. And then even into 2011, I think it took it took about right then, I think, before things kind of started to pick up. 2011, the, the beginning of 2011 was probably right when I think the bottom of the barrel was reached yep. and things were going in the right direction. So for us, 2011 through 2015, we made good, you know, good, good progress every year. This year has been a little bit, little bit soft. In other words, we haven't made any progress. So, of course, you always panic just a little bit but um i'm not sure i mean i know we're in the in a luxury item type business um where it's not a necessity mm-hmm. and a lot of people say you know because of you know everything in the world and and the economy and the elections you know even election year you know people are a little more skeptical about spending their you know hard saved dollars so i'm hoping that it's just a little bit of a patch because it's not bad but I, like you said overall i think everyone's doing better um the 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 industry also weeded out the you know the the bigger guys got a little bit bigger and and it got rid of the little hanger on as you know Mm -hmm. they were just trying to dive in when it was good and not actually doing a good job they were just trying to find a way to make a buck a lot of those guys are gone so it's only the strong ones that have survived and the nice thing is i think the strong guys have gotten stronger meaning 
They understand the business more. Mm-hmm. They're they're working more with the people around them. So I think as an industry, it's very easy to say it's you know June and gloom and and, and everything is going down. Um, it does suck, and hopefully people in their own communities can rally around and try and help keeping public land open, um, whether it's the desert, whether it's recreational riding areas, parks. Because the problem is a lot of these stuff or type of things are being shut down just because we come back to we're in a luxury item business, so now we're not a car or a truck that's actually serving a purpose. We're not delivering goods or keeping food on people's tables. We're a recreational sport that's seen to be just a nuisance. So, mm-hmm. you know, as far as the community goes, you know, it doesn't matter what state you live in, try be, you know, I encourage everyone now to keep our sport and our industry alive and healthy for the for our kids and the next kids. You know, we need these places to be not only open, but also legal to ride on. And, you know, if we can do that, I think there will still always be a need and want for, you know, motorcycle riding. And that's that's the key thing uh, yeah. is we got to keep that to keep the kids wanting to come back. And obviously also just trying to figure out, you know, little things like how do we make the sport safer, more cost-effective, easier for families to get into, you know, just the things that sometimes people don't talk to. You know, if you're a new family, you know, sometimes I feel like when people try and get in, there's someone going, oh, here's some people with a lot of money and no common sense. You know, I'm going to milk them. <laughs> right. And then and then they have a bad taste in their mouth and they leave the industry. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a lot of moving parts, but the nice thing is motorcycles are still what, and I say guys, I know there's a lot, even quite a huge support from the female side, whether it's dual sport, uh, street riding, you know, uh, or even motocross. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in between, you know, we need to make sure that people are accessible to that and, and have the opportunity. Because I, I actually feel like the minute you get people onto a bike, most people become hooked. Anyone that's got a heartbeat usually becomes hooked. It's just that step to get them there. And unfortunately, over time, Things have become more expensive and the harder to get sponsorship and harder for places to ride. Everything's become a little more difficult. So we've got to just try and make sure, you know, as a collective group to try and prevent that from continuing to slide. And I hate to be, you know, I, I, I actually agree with all your points. It's great. Um, I also, there's a place somewhere in our industry, and I don't want to, this is about your career and all the great things you've done. So I don't want to derail it too much with, you know, soapbox stuff, but there's got to be a bike in between the 80 and the 250F, and if that's the 125 two-stroke, then that's fine. If that's a 150 four-stroke, whatever, something to get some dudes sort of back that gap, fill in that gap. That's our. I think we need that. I, I agree 100%, and it's funny you say that because I've got my, my son now who, you know, call him a late bloomer. You know, he, you know he's autistic, but he's pretty high-functioning, and mm-hmm. he's got good, good coordination, but he wants to get into riding. And it's funny you mentioned that because I've been like torn and I've actually had him try a few different bikes and it's, it is, it's really tough to find a bike that's not too gnarly for a kid that's basically in that age where they tell their parents what they want. Call it that 12, maybe 13 year old range where they're like, mom, dad, I want to go and I want to drive. Like you said, you go look and you're like, man, yes, you could say there's a fair amount of options, but there's, there's, there's nothing that really kind of hits the nail on the head, in my opinion. I don't know if it needs to be a, like you said, maybe a, uh, 
even if it was a 175 four stroke that's an in between size sure yeah i think you, i think you'd get a a lot more of your late blooming kids and a lot of your female riders that just want to learn to ride and go and hang out with their hubby and their kids mm-hmm. um you know and i feel like yep. there's a bit of a disconnect and and you know i've always said it and it's, it's not a sales pitch by any means but I said one thing KTM did very well is they really invested in their youth machinery for kids, you know, under the age of 12, so that all those kids that got into motocross bled orange, and then as they grew up, they mm-hmm. continued to ride KTMs, and their parents bought KTMs, and so everyone else did. So, you know, some of the Japanese, I think, there again, they're, 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 they're asleep on their feet, especially yeah. even with two-strokes. You mm-hmm. know, most of them don't even produce two-strokes. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, I was talking to a, a, a big, powerful person at the at an OEM recently at the races, and he, he pointed over the Red Bull truck and said, those guys took us by surprise. He's like, uh, in the bikes and their aggressiveness, he goes, I, I think, you know, he goes, things turn slowly at, at the highest level of the Japanese OEMs, but he goes, I think we've all had our eyes opened a little bit by these guys, and I, I think they mean two strokes, I think they mean aggressive racing programs, I think they mean multiple models of bikes with options, you know? So we'll see. I, I yeah. agree. I mean, yeah. I agree. You've got to have something for everyone. That's that was kind of KTM's philosophy. It was, wasn't and it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, if, if there's a if there's a bike that needs to be made, we're going to make it. Um, and we're seeing the Japanese make some changes as well. But I I don't know. I, I agree with you. I feel like there's a way to make these bikes a little simpler for for the average person that they could actually maintain their own bikes. Meaning, let's go back to two strokes possibly. But maybe there's another way. I mean, the four strokes have become so reliable nowadays. They're almost like cars. Yeah. So if we can do maybe, even if it's an oversized engine, maybe it's a 200cc four stroke. But now you detune it to a sense where it's not a wicked power band. It's a, you can get it maybe in two variation of heights. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. But, mm-hmm. you know, something where it's affordable, it's easy to work on, but it requires almost zero maintenance. I mean, yep. that's the thing. Motocross bikes nowadays, if you want to be somewhat competitive, you're working on them every time you ride, before and after. Yeah, um, oh, yeah right. So, it, you know, it actually becomes a little bit of a hassle. So I think if we can make it a little more affordable, less maintenance and easier to understand, um, I, you know, I still think there's a bright future for our industry. Let's uh, talk about you a little bit. Um, when Jeff Emig had to leave the uh, outdoor series and concentrate on supercross only. Uh, he was Wygant's partner in the outdoor series. I got to say, I, I never thought your name never came into my mind as somebody that, that would want to do it or would be good at it or anything. And then you got the call, you know, Grant Langston's going to be the new partner. And I've told you this privately. I think you do a great job. I, I'm surprised I didn't like, obviously, you know, we were joking before I hit record here about how you can talk. You're a great talker. You're good. You're articulate. Um, it's a perfect job for you, and you're good at it. And I've told Fro the same thing. I wish Fro would be a little bit more like you. You, you and Jeff are world, we're world class racers with, you know, titles and so many race wins. And if you want to offer up an opinion, uh, good or bad or indifferent, I would respect that for the things you guys have done. Fro feels like I don't want to get anybody mad at me. This and that. Um, he's still good at his job, don't get me wrong, but you, you've really found a home. Uh, uh, it's a nice balance. You, you, you do a good job at it. You, you offer up your opinion, good or bad, whatever. And, uh, yeah, so congrats on that. Like, I hope you don't leave. I don't know what the pay is, but, uh, stick around. It, 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 you're, you do really well at it. Well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Obviously, especially coming from someone like yourself, that's been a journalist. Um, 
you know, there is always that fine balance. And, and I think Jeff Emig does do a great job, and I think he's come a long way and he's gone through um, more than most people. I mean, it's, it's, it's very um, crazy to think that a guy with a speech impediment ended up being yeah. a national broadcaster. You know, it's, you know, you got to take your hat off to someone. Like, he overcame a big hurdle. Um, I didn't go through any training or coaching. I think for me, my coaching and training was just the, the, the school of, of hard knocks, you know, um, going to Europe, you know, being a kid from South Africa that was starving for information. Like I've always asked everyone that I've looked up to for an, their opinion, advice, direction, what they think, how they, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. when you're a kid coming out of South Africa, there wasn't a lot to take in. So you have to, you basically have to ask, you know, I started learning quickly. If you don't ask, you don't get anything. Uh-huh. And I also learned if you ask, the worst that can that they can say is no. <laughs> you know, you can't get arrested for asking questions. But yeah. I try to soak in everything I got from everyone. And um, you know, I think I think with 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 someone like with Jeff Emig, he was, in my opinion, the first real color commentator that's had to cover everything for a long time. And in this new modern era, you know, the 21st century. And it is tough. You know, don't think I don't get hate mail left, right, and center (laughs) from people. Because there's always someone that you're going to tick off. But I've also learned if you don't, if you're not pissing anyone off, you're also not really doing your job correctly. Because you've got to say the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. Like you said, whether it's right or wrong, and sometimes at the spur of the moment, you've got to just have something to say. Yeah. So I I don't don't go out to, 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 to... you know, beat anyone up or, yeah. or, you know, try and find something negative. I, but I also don't want to sugarcoat it and just say, Oh, everything's great. Everything's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Super happy, super stoked. I'm just happy to be here. Cause after a while that also becomes really boring um, or, you know, becomes irrelevant, but, yeah. um, and it's different personalities, you know, <clears throat> you know, me a little bit, Steve, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I kind of say what I think, whether mm-hmm. it's right, wrong or indifferent. Um, I am who I am. Um, and I think Jeff's had, he's been polished more. Like when I listen to Fro, he sounds good. He can, he can, you know, he can kind of cover the bases, but, um, I think cause I'm more raw and I've been told, tell us something we don't know and, mm-hmm. and, and, and good, bad or indifferent, please give us an opinion from someone that's been there. And I've just stuck with that. And I have also tried to learn just from people like yourself or anyone that I would, you know, take any, um, uh, what's, you know, basically enjoy their opinion yeah. or yep. take it. As, take some knowledge. There's always going to be douchebags that say you suck. Oh, of I'm course. Like, okay, yeah. Cool. Right. <laughs> I'm like, um, but, you know, when people say, I like it when you do this or I love when you do that or just be careful you don't say that too much because it is. Um, I don't watch the races. I, I, I can talk a lot, but I, I can never listen back to myself. I hate my voice. Um, <laughs> I drive myself up the wall. Um, so like I said, I don't watch any, I haven't watched the motocross national in over two years. I watch every other form of racing. Mm-hmm. So now I find myself listening to other people and figuring out why I like certain commentators and why I dislike certain right, commentators. Right. So I try and listen and go, Oh, that's why I think I like him. You know, he, did it good. He sounds good. He does, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just take what people say to me. Um, and um, I think the hardest part in the beginning was just, you know, you do take everything personally and you take everything to heart. Um, 
because you get self-conscious because everything you say, just about everybody you know is watching. So if you make one mistake, everyone you know heard it. You yeah, know, and yeah. it's, you get very self-conscious. And uh, you know, especially in the beginning, you start. When I try to listen to the first few races I did, all I heard was every mumble, stumble, <laughs> uh, 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 and then you get yeah. so mad. Yep. And I'm like, oh, I'm so bad. And everyone's like, no, you're doing good. I'm like, don't patronize me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you're good at it. I like it. I like some opinion. That's just me, my opinion. Some people don't. And, uh, you know, yeah, I like it. I like that you tell me what you think. As a former racer at the highest level, you tell me, was that dirty? Was that a good move? What should the guy have done? What do you think of his rock? I like all that. So it's good. Keep it up. Keep doing it. I don't know if you enjoy, do you enjoy it because you're kind of on the road. You got a family, the travel, like is. Yeah. Um, I think the first year I was, had a mixed batch of emotions going into it. Like I was excited. I was, I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, didn't really know exactly kind of what you're getting yourself into. You think you know, but you never really know until you get there. Mm-hmm. So during the first year, like I said, I watched during the fourth round, I threw the TV remote at the TV and had a little meltdown and almost <laughs> quit because I couldn't handle it. And um, thanks to some family and friends that said, no, you know, like for no training, you sound good. I'm like, well, the minute you say for no training, that makes me sound like I suck and you justify <laughs> that it's not that bad. And they're like, no, 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 calm down, calm down. So I, I did. I, I during the first year, like midway through the season, I, I went through a tough patch where I didn't even want to really talk that much because I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want it to be scrutinized or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, year two, you know, I thought, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing. So last year I went through that where I started realizing what I think I knew they wanted and trying to just cut out the, the fluff or the crap or the unnecessary stuff, even though sometimes you do – it's tough. If there's a battle, you've got to get your point out real quick and, and, yeah. and smooth. And other times when it's boring, you can go and ramble on about a, on a sure. certain topic for a few minutes. So there's so many factors involved. It's not mm-hmm. just a matter of talking, which I thought, oh, I'll be fine. You know, you've got to fit in, you know, segments and, and time frames and mm-hmm. split things out and do this. And you've got people in your ear and you, you'll be talking about something. And if someone crashes, they cut the camera. I mean, you've got to just switch like, Right. You know, on the time and, you know, so it does, it gets a little overwhelming at times, but uh, last year I, I, I kind of started thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I can do this. And then I think this year I, I've kind of got that sense of that feeling like I am who I am. I'm not going to change. If you don't like me now, you're never going to like me. <laughs> Fortunately, the majority of the people love the work. Yep. The TV ratings have been very good. Um, I've had some compliments from high up at NBC as well as, you know, you know, the, uh, Carrie, Carrie Jo, you know, Coombs, she's always said, you're my guy. I love it. And, and I think the accent doesn't hurt. I've noticed that. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say it's, it's a, I don't know, easy to, to listen to type accent, which obviously for me, I just completely lucked into that one, right. um, with my South African American accent. Yeah. Um, so this year now I kind of feel like cool, you know. People, people have you know been very supportive. Um, I've had a lot of compliments, and to be honest, I've never been someone that needs compliments because in racing I don't need someone to say you're fast, you look good. The trophy next to me determined, you know, mm-hmm. how well I did. Whereas in the TV world, it really is on people's opinions. So I've had it, you know, enough, I guess 
support from people that I care about where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm here. I hope that I hope to please everyone, even though that's impossible. It is. But yep. it, I'm glad that most of the people tend to enjoy it. And um, so I guess I'm having more fun with it this year. I'm more relaxed and more oh, feeling like I'm, I'm in the groove. And, and working with Jason's also a nice, easy um, person to deal with. Jason's got that kind of personality. And I, even the other day, I was his phone was charging right next to me, and I see him, and he's texting you during the show, and you guys are going back and forth, and I was having a good laugh, and then he's got the word of the day, and, and the guy's got, like, his laptop and his phone and texting, and, and he can do so many things, and he's just, he's, just, he's just on it. so natural, and I'm looking at this, and I'm like, man, how the hell do you do that? And he goes, well, I don't know how the hell you can come up with so much stuff like you do, and I'm like, well, oh, yeah. thanks, you know, I guess it's a different yeah. side of things. Um, hey, growing up in South Africa, getting in the time machine a little bit. If Greg Alberton doesn't go to Europe, become a world champion, head to America, do you do you think it's possible? Do you always have it? Obviously, I'm, I'm assuming you were you were balls out fast as an amateur in South Africa, but it's such a long way away. It's such yep. an amazing thing. Like almost, like even me, I grew up in Canada, but and I wanted to come and race and be a mechanic down here, and it seemed like it was so hard to yeah. do. Uh, and then that's even easier than you. Do, so if Albie, if Albie doesn't have a success, do you think you do? Was that a huge thing for you, or, or were you bound and determined anyways to do it? I I think Greg. I don't know, I don't have a yes or no answer on that one, but I think Greg made Greg paved the road to people opening up their eyes and ears to the thought of a kid out of Africa, mm-hmm. um, because. At Albertine stage, it was really only him and Rob Herring that had gone overseas. Right. Um, but if you, if you, well, Rob Herring, you know, and a couple of those guys like Paul Cooper, a lot of them, they had um, Doug Moore, right? Doug Moore. Yeah, they, yep. they had British passports and that, so they they basically got into Europe, you know, usually via England, uh-huh. um, British Championship, and then progress type thing. But Albertine had to do it because his family's from Dutch heritage, but he did it as the first real South African, you know, passport holder, if it makes sense. And he had a bit of a rough road. And, and um, I mean, I remember his first year in GPs. He wasn't – he couldn't make it to – I know Sweden was one, and there was one or two other Grand Prix. He wasn't able to even get in the country yeah. because of the lingering effects of apartheid. Yeah, Ian so Harrison. Greg, uh, Ian Harrison was telling me about it. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So Greg definitely – I think he – he probably did more than he realized. I mean, he was probably just chasing his dream, but he gave that next generation, meaning all the kids my age, whether it's Swanepoel, Rattray, myself, there have been a lot of other kids that have gone over and had some success. I mean, I know you probably know the name Fitzgerald. He went up mm-hmm. to Canada. Yeah, I can remember. You know, we've had a bunch of guys go to Europe over the years. So a lot of South Africans have sort of like got a bit of a better look at or better opportunity mm-hmm. because of Greg. Um, so... When I was a kid, Greg was my idol, and like I said, he was that guy that I feel like all us kids just just yeah. aspired to be. You know, like he was one of us. You know, and um, and did you did you always say like, hey, I want to go to Europe and I want to go to America, like Greg, yeah. or did you want to go to America but like Chad Reed, you had to go to Europe first to show people that you actually could ride, or were you? Yeah, yeah. Well. I was too young to really know, like, the footprint of the plan. So okay. basically what happened was it was Greg's dad, Tony Albertain, spoke to my dad, and he and kind of said, 
through trial and error, this is this is kind of a little bit of a roadmap. And 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 one of the reasons is in America between Loretta Lynn's and how strong the motorcycle industry is in this country, it's very hard. If you, like you said, you're a nobody when you come from another country. You either yeah. need to have a world championship credential or something, something yeah. to make you become a wanted, you know, person in the United States. And I think for me, I'd gone and done like the British Schoolboy Championship on 80s. Um, in 95, got noticed there, uh, went and did a European championship, qualified second. So I just remember everyone looking at the board, basically saying, who the F is this guy? <laughs> right. Who's this triple-digit squid here leading, leading the timesheets? So, yeah, I mean, a few places we kind of, you know, were able to just get enough exposure where people were just going, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then um, what was nice was after all that, I ended up, getting in touch with Harry Everts, Stephen Everts' dad, who had said, your kid just turned 15, he's got something special. You know, we're having a Grand Prix team next year, you know, with young development riders, Mm -hmm. and um, we'd be interested. Would you want to come and do a test ride? So, of course, we said, absolutely. Sure. And um, so between that, there was that option, and there was like, basically two, call it really small kind of operational type GP team, mm-hmm. you know, that were saying what they were interested. But right. but obviously with Harry Everts, that was a huge name. And, and there was, because of Harry, he brought immediately um, yeah, uh, prestige, uh, yeah, prestige, uh, everything, uh, the recognition, board, right, right. Exactly. So we knew it was without a doubt the best option. And, um, Went to this test ride day, and I just remember my dad just saying, whatever you do, I don't care. You just make sure you lay down a lap that, you know, these guys go, wow. <laughs> right. So, um, is Uncle Andrew yeah, is Uncle Andrew with you at this point, too? No. Okay, okay. me and Pops. Yeah, you and Pops. And um, so we get there, and I just remember, I, was, I probably looked like I was about to kill myself because I was hanging it out. <laughs> and... Uh, it turns out, you know, there were a few other riders there, and I remember Steve Ramon was there, and he had already been signed. Okay. So like my dad yep. said, it's pretty simple. Make sure you do a better lap time than him. Right, right. Well, I did. I beat his lap time by a second. Oh, so shit. Of okay. straight away, yeah, they yeah. were like – and 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 uh, it wasn't even a track that I think really suited me. I just feel like it was one of those days when – you know that old saying, when your life – we feel like your life depends on it. Right, so right. I put everything into it like I was going to do the lap of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, thank goodness I did because all of a sudden I said, wow, this kid's got something, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the start of my European career. Um, you know, basically we discussed things, signed a contract, went back to South Africa, and it was a matter of, all right, you know, selling everything yeah. and leaving. And we didn't have a whole lot. And like my parents joke, we were they were in debt with everything because of my racing. Right. So once they sold everything, it just pretty much eliminated the debt. <laughs> and we arrived in Europe with, I had a clothes bag and a gear bag, and that was it. Jeez. And, um, yeah. You know, literally started from nothing. And and then so is that on Suzuki's? What is that on? That was Kawasaki. Kawasaki. So okay. Yeah. Um. And then early on in your in your success, I remember you telling me like the sand GPs, like you weren't even making them, right? Well, basically the first important race, there was one or two invitationals and that I wasn't even invited to most of those races. But 
eventually when Harry said, oh, this kid's from Africa, give him a chance type thing, mm-hmm. I got an entry to a couple of events. But they weren't th- that important. One, it starts snowing, and I'd never dealt with that <laughs> stuff in my life. So I was just, my goggles misted up, my eyes were stinging, I couldn't feel my hands. I mean, it was just like, and it was muddy sand like you've never seen. So it was miserable. But yeah, the, the first important race because the team was based in Belgium, mm-hmm. was the Belgian championship. And the very first race was Lommel. <laughs> and I got lapped the first race by my teammate and a few other people. And I got lapped twice the second moto, like literally right before the finish line. I got right. lapped for a second time. And it was not even just like humiliating. It was demoralizing. You know, sure. it, yeah. I just thought, what the heck have I got myself into? You know, I've never been I've never been demoralized like that in my life, and um, and then of course you know my dad's not happy and you're in a different place and now it just becomes miserable. Now you start hating racing, so it really sucked to go from I think I finished twenty ninth overall out of forty or something like that. Yeah, and I think eight guys didn't even finish the last <laughs> race, so I was basically running last. Jeez. And then it was nice because by the end of 98, but by the time I just signed with KTM, I actually finished. I didn't win a Belgian championship, but I got second overall at the last race mm-hmm. with a with a 4-1. I won the very final moto. So I literally went from being a lapper to, to being um, a winner, a race, the, yeah. a race winner in a, in a period of eight months. And this so is uh, this is uh, you and your and uh, and your dad living in like a one bedroom apartment, I assume, right, or whatever. Yes, just... yes. We had a one bedroom apartment, and then my uncle Andrew came over to help uh-huh. because at this point, my dad was trying to do everything, but he couldn't be at the race shop all the time. So they wanted to get a mechanic for me full time. So my uncle obviously wanted to come and 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 be a part of it, and and it was obviously nice to have family around. But yeah, during this the the ninety eight season, there was three three grown men living in a one bedroom apartment. My uncle was, was sleeping in the uh, laundry room. <laughs> nice. Um, so Vandervan picks you up. He sees that and he, he's the one, or are you, are you there then or no? Do you go well, to the- what happened was basically the real breakthrough was so in 98, like I said, not only did I suck at the first Belgian right. championship, but when we got to the grand prix, I didn't qualify for the first two. And then, uh, oh, sorry, didn't qualify. Then I was a reserve rider, like 41st. Mm-hmm. Didn't get a race and then qualified. And then was racing, but the motos were 40 minutes plus two laps back then. So a weekend was long because you had Saturday, you had two 45-minute practice sessions. Then you had a 40-minute qualifying session. Then Sunday morning, you had a 40-minute warm-up and then two 40-minute <laughs> 40 40 plus motor. two lap races. So if you add that up, it's a whole lot more racing than they do at a – U.S. national these yeah. days. Yeah. It was more than double. Um, but, you know, that's Grand Prix as opposed to here. I mean, we, they do Supercross here, so right. I'm trying to remind people that when you add it all together, it kind of makes sense. But I started qualifying but getting laps, you know, um, and, and not scoring points to almost scoring points to got a point here and a point there and then – in France, I had a nice breakthrough race, and I had my first top 10. <clears throat> and um, I actually was um, approached, uh, well, originally was offered a pretty decent deal. I mean, it was the first time, I, you know, ever offered a salary. So, of course, to me, this was a great deal. But I was going to basically ride for a um, Thomas Knipe, you know, the Joe oh, KTM team. I, I worked for Knipe. I worked yeah. for him in, uh, 
in the uh, the '99 season. So it would have been like the year yeah. after you. I, I I made it, or the year after I made it uh, three months, and then uh, I quit. I could not stand it. I thought I wanted to really hurt yeah. Thomas, but yeah, no, 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 I, I I know what you mean, and okay. it's it's just different as well. But what happened was KTM had said, well, hey, we've got Keith Van der Fen, who's in Holland, who's basically going to be factory supported. Mm-hmm. We would rather you go there, and we will pay you that same salary. So, um, you know, for us, it made all the sense in the world, and there was nothing, you know, much better that came along. Um, you know, there were other people were like, hey, we're interested, because I think people were looking at, wait, with this kid's age and his progression, you know, this is a diamond in the rough. Yeah. But with KTM, for some reason, between my dad and I, we just saw factory rider, they're on the, you know, on the rebound, and they had decent bonus program and you know mm-hmm. they were actually the ones that came and said we want you kind okay. of thing so yeah. sometimes that just makes you feel you know the need to want to sign a contract because you know you, you're wanted you yeah know? yeah and, for and, sure and that doesn't always happen a lot of people say oh it's always about money and i'm like there's so many elements involved that it's not always about the money the money obviously if there's a big money difference does make a difference but a lot of times yeah, there's a whole lot more to the story than people know but um, anyway ended up signing with He's, plus KTM actually said we would rather you went in this direction for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. So it worked out pretty well. And then in 99, um, obviously living in Holland now, I had to ride the Dutch championship. <laughs> in the same. <laughs> yep. yep. And then, but, but, but now I've now got over a year of experience. I'm like 18 months into this and I'm starting to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Thanks everybody for listening to the motorcycle superstore.com racer X podcast. Thanks for listening, man. These things are going great, and I'm stoked with the responses from everybody, and uh, you guys have been doing a great job with the downloads. Don't forget the Fly Race and Moto 60 show on Thursdays, the Pulp MX show on Mondays, the NFAB Racer X Fantasy show sometime in the middle of the week, and a Motorcycle Superstore, they're a passionate team who speak moto. If I'm talking about going riding, bench racing from the latest company ride to the latest parts and gear. This is what drives them to be a place for you to check out all things motorcycles with the top brands and gear, accessories, tires, parts, and apparel. You want to save there. they got everything you need to get out and ride. Go to the website to check out their inventory of brands, uh, over 700 of them. Do you speak moto? If you do, go to MotorcycleSuperstore.com. Use the code PB-PULP16 to uh, 10% off participating brands. PB-PULP16 saves you money. All right, let's get to these commercials from Racetech and Michelin and MotorcycleSuperstore.com. Thanks for listening. See you after the break. Racetech people, Racetech.com. These guys have been in business for over 30 years, supplying racers, riders, and tuners with factory-level suspension to everyday racer. There's a lot of top suspension guys in the pits that got their start with Racetech. Trust me on this. There's more than a few guys that have learned underneath Paul Feed and gone on to, uh, to great things. Paul Feed, the original suspension guru. I guarantee you, eh, probably 82.7% of you people listening to this podcast need some sort of suspension work, whether it's uh, just a simple oil change with new bushings and seals, give your bike some love, whether it's the right spring rate for your weight and or speed, or maybe you just need some revalving on the machine to uh, help you uh, take first place in that Chicken Licks Raceway. Something something uh, on your bike needs attention for Racetech. I guarantee you. Freeze, Gilmore, some of the guys just using uh, Racetech, Privateer Proven. They work with uh, Ben Lemay.
LeMay also. They're back with Ben LeMay. And uh, they offer a full line of Race Tech High Performance Springs. These springs are called High Performance because they're extremely lightweight for their rates and feature the tightest tolerances in the industry. You want to save 10% at uh, Race Tech? Go to PulpMX2015. When you order, you can save 10% at Racetech.com. And they're uh, proud sponsors of this podcast, and we thank you guys. All right. Back to the show. Michelin tires are back, people. MichelinMotorcycle.com. Michelin Starcross 5, brand new, available in hard, medium, soft, and sand. Uh, their off-road tires are some of the best ones out there, and they've revamped this whole lineup. There's no one who knows these tires better than our own, Chris Kiefer. When they're calling it comfort casing technology, what are they talking about? Is this a fancy marketing term or what? No, it's actually the carcass of the tire itself, so how much it flexes or how you know sidewall stiff is that you have when you come in the corners. And what's cool about this tire is even from the previous version, on the MH3, it gives more. So when you hit square edge or you're coming out of a corner with some bumps, it has some give to it. And it's more comfort, so it doesn't feel so rigid. A lot of that has to do with the, the CCT. So you're telling me the comfort casing at the end of the day, maybe it helps you a little bit to have some suspension in tires. Yeah, obviously it's flexing a little bit, but also, too, when you come into corners, you don't want it to roll on you. So they've got that dialed in to where you come into a corner and you still have enough stiffness where it grabs and bites, but yet straight line, you have comfort. Hey, as a former factory mechanic, Kiefer, I know all about mounting tires, um, so no problem for me to mount anything. Right. Well, maybe not a moose. Uh, you found mounting these new Michelin's uh, pretty easy, actually. Yeah, I'm a great test rider, but my mechanic skills are novice at best, so mounting the tire wasn't too bad. They sent me a bunch of tires to mount before testing, and I was out there busting in the garage, and normally you got to put some tires in the sun, let them soften up a little bit, but this... Uh, the bead rolls on really nice. I didn't have to struggle. No curse words were, were sworn in the garage. So uh, it was a lot better for me, you know, putting these on. Four versions of this tire. They cover all the uses, Kiefer. Reduced weight, comfort casing technology, mounting, traction, handling. They do it all. Starcross 5, MichelinMotorcycle.com. Thank those guys. Check them out at the local dealer people. These guys know tires and they know what they're doing. So in 99... I actually remember one of the first rounds was the Belgium Championship, and they wanted us to do this, and KTM wanted us to do this. And it actually was at a track that I hadn't been to. And so now, a year later, opening round of the Belgium Championship, I win the Belgium Championship. Yeah. So the year before the opening round, I got lapped yeah. twice in the second motor. Yeah, so, I mean, we're talking massive This is a big deal. Right, right. This is, uh, this is Champ, right? Dog food KTM team or no? Yep. Yeah. Champ dog food. Right. Yep. And um, and uh, the owner of Champ actually was actually a super nice guy, very wealthy, and he had a, a multitude of businesses. He had Tinnemans, which was his last name. It was a big automotive company that call it maybe like a Penske over here. Um, then he had, I mean, he had like four or five different companies. They were all totally different, from automotive to dog uh-huh. food to um, – <laughs> manufacturing uh, plastic injection molding stuff. I mean, oh, okay. yeah, this yeah. guy was a real entrepreneur, but we hit it off real well. So I was always treated very well. I mean, I wasn't paid through the nose, but I was always treated well there. And um, and then with the, the, the Dutch championship, it was even tough to beat the Dutch guys who had no real credibility in the GP. Sure, you know, yeah. They, they were the guys that wouldn't qualify in Italy and France on the hard pack <laughs> podium at the Dutch Grand Prix they, two weeks later. You'd see them, you know? their jerseys flapping in the wind as they pass you with no... <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when I went there, I was dealing with even like Eric Eggins, who I think oh, yeah, probably Eric, know the name. Yeah, yeah, he was the Sandman for a while, right. like a bit of a hurlings. 
Um, and there were a bunch of other guys. So the sand riders are good. So I was basically, you know, if it wasn't that sandy, um, you know, I usually won. And then on the real deep sand track, I was knocking on the door of the podium. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the season, I ended up um, kind of really finding my stride and hauling on that KTM. Plus that KTM factory bike had a lot of horsepower, yeah, which they, they were good. in the sand yeah. makes a big difference. Especially, yeah. you know, because it's a horsepower type deal. I always, uh, anyway, I always tell people, like, uh, part of the reason that that suspension wasn't great because of the no link, the PDS system. But the good thing about it is it moved the shock to the side. It had a straight air boot for, to a big ass carburetor. I think we ran 40 millimeter carbs, and you could move some serious air in a straight line without having that shock in the center of the frame. So well, it, it may not handle great, but it was fast. <laughs> But you know what? I, I I tell you what, and and this is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons they didn't have a linkage was I genuinely believe that the way to make a bike fast in the sand is not to have a linkage <laughs> because it minimizes the movement that you don't want. Sure. And yeah. it's always using the spring, so it's pushing that rear shock up. So when you're off the back wheeling through deep sand, I don't know. I just felt like right. the PDS actually got better power to the ground through big sand rollers than, than a linkage. Um, oh, interesting. So may, maybe that's what took them down the wrong road because they used to do a lot of their winter testing in, at sand tracks yeah, sure. because they weren't WP. Complete, in, yeah, in Hull. exactly. Um, by the way, the uh, the Thomas Knipe super team that I worked on in the winter of 98, the spring of 99, uh, Jerome Hemery and uh, Mika Sarankoski. Yep. Yes, those are those yep. our riders. So. Another names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at, th- at this point, so yeah, you're starting to get like some results. You're starting to get good in the sand. Are you always keeping an eye on a USA racing? Are you always like, hey, Dad? No, not at this point. No, okay. Not yeah. in 1990, not during 1999. Um, you're just I'm trying that to. Point now yeah, you're just trying I'm, to survive. I'm starting to win sand races, but I'm not like the man. Mm-hmm. Like, if it wasn't the gnarliest, deepest sand tracks, then I was a man. Like a Southwick, like this, what I call a hybrid intermediate type track. Then I started becoming good because um, I think a little bit of my style was a little bit like Tomax. I started bulldogging that rough stuff. Um, but then I think the real big breakthrough for me in 99 wasn't winning a Dutch championship or a Belgian championship round. But I think the big, big turning point for me mentally came in the <clears> – <throat> so 99, I'm doing well. I end up breaking my navicular. Oh, okay. I, I, get, I get it plated. So fortunately, I didn't even miss a race. It was a weekend off. Jeez, um, really? And then, yeah. So oh, I, I had a plate. I had a plate it on a Tuesday afternoon, and I raced uh, the following weekend. So what's that? Eleven days later, I was back on the bike, mm-hmm. and um, I ended up fading a little bit. But fortunately, it was a track that was a little bit sandy. It wasn't too bad, and I still got points. Um, <clears throat> so it wasn't. Um, I didn't really lose much as far as right. fitness or anything. Um, it was just a matter of my hand was a little weak that first race, so I faded a little bit later on the moto, but um, I was fine. But a few weeks went by, and then I kind of went back-to-back Dutch championship wins. And then the German Grand Prix was actually in very kind of the northeast of Germany, right on the Polish border. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a hybrid track, a little bit like Southwick, but maybe a little less sandy in some areas, but just kind of that choppy rough. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was pretty excited. 
like, well, it turns out after qualifying, I was 1.2 seconds quicker than anybody. <laughs> and um, wow. and I've never podiumed a race. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now Saturday afternoon, I'm walking the track with my dad, and and usually he's a guy, you've got this, you can win this. But he was the one saying, you know, there's one thing doing one lucky fast lap. And <laughs> uh, you one you don't have it in you, right. <laughs> yeah, like he's almost kind of saying it's one thing to do it once, but to do come on, two motos. Come on, Papa. Come on. <laughs> and, I, and, and I said to him, I said, Dad, you know what's crazy? It wasn't one lucky lap. I said, I felt like that was – I said, I feel like I've ridden over the edge before and but, not qualified. Right, right. I, said, I feel like right now, like – I said, it's weird. It seems too easy to be true. And he goes, well, that's because it is. It's not going to be that way. And da, da, da. So I went to bed all kind of psyched out, but I kept thinking, I've got pace. Like, it's not that tough for me. Like, this track's got my name on it kind of. Right. But I wasn't sure because I almost thought maybe I am just kidding myself. You know, maybe I am in La La Land. Well, I came out the next day. I was faster than warm-up and dominated both motos. And it was the first race. I got the whole shot. Mm-hmm. So and, this would have um, been like Coyote, right? Puzar, yep, yep, right? Yeah, yep, that area. Yep, yeah, Coyote, Puzar, Federici, Dobb, Brown, uh, DV, Travisini. What's that? DV. Uh, nope. DV and this year had moved to the two fifties. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. In '98, I raced DV a little bit, but okay, he was. We we had a little bit different speed level in the beginning. By the end of the year, there were some races we probably were close on track, but. The beginning of the year, yeah. he lapped me, you know, if, if I qualified. Right. But, yeah, Coyote, um, yeah, Coyote and Puzar Brownie, yeah, yeah, fast fast group. So then, yeah, so basically first moto, I get the whole shot and I lead start to finish. And um, But it wasn't, like, very convincing. It just seemed like there was a freight train of riders just knocking on the door. Uh-huh. But uh, it was like one of those where you just did enough. And then second moto, I get the whole shot and I watch the front end five turns into it. Uh-huh. Picked the bike up, didn't stall, but got going just outside the top 10. Well, I basically had to almost pass the top 10 in points. Sure. So I came from outside the top 10 and literally ran down every single guy and passed everyone to win. And What was your best that, finish up until then in a moto? Like, I'll have to double check, but I think did you, I said I didn't podium, yeah. but I think if I'm not mistaken in Slovenia, I went... Six three, oh, okay. third overall. So okay, so you had um, some sort of results before a one one. Before I had I, one, <laughs> I had I, had, I got on the podium one moto, and then ended up podium for the overall. And I remember standing on the podium and looking over. I'm like, I'm right next to Coyote and Puzar. Like this is yeah. I used to, like I don't know if I should ask them for their autograph or shake their <laughs> hand or what to do. And. uh and I'm pretty sure that was before Germany, but that was the first ever sniff. That was the first ever podium. Then, like I said, it was only a few weeks later with Germany. Um, I went and, and, and dominated. But, yeah, what's funny is the 6-3 was still the sixth tied my best finish, and the third was by far my best Yeah, finish. yeah. And then I went out and, and dominated and then won one. Germany. Jeez. But, I mean, I'm talking dominating from practice time yeah. to qualifying right. to warm-up. To both motos, fastest oh, lap. Vanderbilt you know. must, Vanderbilt must have been freaking out. All the KTM factory guys too were probably like, "Oh my god, this kid!" <laughs> well, he kind of he kind of did because I think then he realized he might lose me because the Dutch are cheap; they don't like to pay. <laughs> and then now, after winning a, a right. race, right? They could. I mean, you know how awkward it is when you're under a tent and a team manager with a completely different color shirt comes walking up and like signals you over, and you're having this little powwow. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? It, yeah, it starts yeah. getting a little awkward because everyone's reading between the lines. But um, sure, that was when um, Kurt Nickel had really been making. He had basically retired from racing, and KTM had kind of put him in charge of more and more things. And uh, he was in charge of starting a new in-house factory 125 KTM team because he had done the 500 team with Shane King, and he was actually a, a member of the team before mm-hmm. getting injured. And then they said, okay, we're going to do 125. And then um, I give Kurt um, hassles to this day because he said, you know what, keep him there. Yeah. Because on our factory team, we need two guys who can win a title, you know, not just a Oh, race. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, need, we need solid title guys. So keep, keep him on the champ team, right? Yep. Oh. But um, the funniest part was I didn't even know this, but I was actually on a radio show the other day, and they had Kurt Nickel on. And he goes, the first time I met this little kid, Langston, he goes, he walked up to me at a race and goes, hey, listen, I know I'm not on your factory team, but I'm going to smoke your rider, so you should just give me factory <laughs> bikes anyway. <laughs> Sounds like and so- I said to him, did I really say that? And he goes, I swear. It's <laughs> wow. stuck in my mind. He goes, you told me I'm going to smoke you guys anyway, so you should just give me factory just, bikes right now. Just give me a bike. And he said, and I said, so what did you think? And he goes, you know what? The way you said it and what I had seen, he goes, I just believed you. And he goes, I told him, we got we to give this kid whatever he <laughs> this needs. this kid, right. Which, like you said, was I broke a lot of crap back then. So yeah, I did yeah. need a lot. Um, and um, so they, they intentionally chose for me to be there. Um, they stepped up my deal going into 2000 between KTM and Champ. Uh-huh. And um, I was already money. comfortable right. and happy there. And for KTM, was great because they had their Austria team, which was first time, plus mm-hmm. their um, Italian team, which actually Trampus Parker rode for for a while. And then they had the, the Dutch-based team. So they had one real factory team and two factory-supported teams. But as you can imagine, I got everything and anything I needed, yeah. especially going into the season and obviously during the season. So. Um, after 99, that's kind of like, okay, I've arrived. You know, yeah. and that's why I said I came to, to the States, did some riding and, and training, you know, because the winter here is awesome right. in the Southern California. But I think it was that towards the end of 99, especially after I came here, I, I still said, I want to be in America. Like, this is my goal. Yeah. And, I, and my dad goes, well, what do you, when do you think? And I said, well, I'm going to go back, win the world title, and then I'm going to come to America. My dad's like, oh, you got everything lined <laughs> big, big up. Big plans, huh? on your plan? And I was too young and stubborn. I just said, well, what do you mean? I, I'm, I'm, I'm fast. I got the best bike. I'm the man. I'm going to go and I'm going to win. Snap next, cash checks, and get out of here <laughs> and go to the States. And he's like, well, you know, everything always sounds great on paper, but, you know, not everyone's plan goes according to plan. But fortunately, pretty much everything went according to plan. And um, yeah. 2000 was a good season. Dude, that didn't win. The, the, the two, win. Go ahead. I, I didn't win every race, but I won a lot of races. And when I didn't win, I was still very consistent. And, and in GPs, it's hard to be consistent because you're in different continents, different weather. I mean, different tracks. The yeah, are so much larger. Right. Um, the tracks are so much different between different continents. There's different people prepping them. There's, you know, there's so many variations. I mean. You know anyone that follows it. I mean, look look what they're doing now. They go to Glen Helen one weekend, and then they're in, they're on the drag strip in right. North Carolina. Like <laughs> they're scrambling. But you know, I just think with the GPs, with someone like Longo, it's all about you know just whatever he thinks works. And we've ridden some really good tracks in some 
random countries, but we've also ridden a lot of crappy tracks in random countries. Um, mm-hmm. So you really have to, to be a world champion, you have to deal with a lot of elements. Um, I'm not saying it's the best riders in the world. Yeah. Because I think the, the level here in the U.S., we could go back and forth and argue, you know. But the level here is is, is incredible as well, as much as the elements are different because you've got Supercross, you've got different types of tracks, you've got yep. hot, hot weather, which the Europeans definitely struggled with. I mean, we went to Brazil and half the Euros were passed out at the start line. I'm like, <laughs> oh, man, it's like feel like we're back home. Yeah. Yeah, Man- Mantova too was really hot. I just got back there two weeks ago, and guys were struggling. And uh, and even Chad, even though Chad didn't have a great race, he's like, I think I can get some guys because uh, this isn't that bad. This is Florida, you know, to me. So um, oh, absolutely, I found it was interesting. That 2000 season. So Dobbs on the factory team, right? Dobb is Nichols yep. Nichols' choice to win. Um, yep. And you're on the champ team, and Brownie's there. On uh, is he on Rinaldi? What's he? Or is he riding? No, he was, um, he's on Cat Honda. Yeah, yeah That's you guys had some knockdown battles. Um, it wasn't always yeah. great, huh? You weren't always, which is really funny that it was Brown too, because you'd meet up with him, you know, as we all know, a couple of years later. Um, and, and Dob too, like Dob was the factory guy, and I imagine there were some noses noses out of joint a little bit there, right? Like with with him being the factory guy and and all that. It was a great. I remember reading in Cycle News, you guys like just seemed like you were battling every single weekend. Put it this way, things became intense real quick. And, 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 and I'll tell you one thing I've learned through racing. No matter what, the minute you become a threat to someone, they want to make sure that they start um, trying to put you in your place. So, mm-hmm. yep. um, I, I, and I'll tell you flat out, they, they can say what they want, but Mike, Mike Brown was the first one that really ticked me off <laughs> because in Brazil, I, I was young, um, on the KTM. So I was actually small and light. So I was a little more like a pocket rocket on arguably the fastest bike. Well, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say arguably, I believe it was the fastest bike without a doubt, the KTM. And um, so I, got, I started getting good. But it was in Brazil. Brownie was actually really fast that day. You know, I'm sure you've seen it when Brownie has his days, I mean, the one, one, he'll go out and dominate. Right. And um, so this is one of his days. Well, anyway, he catches up to me. And instead of just passing me and going to win the race, he starts just messing with me. Like, I'm talking like riding into me, yelling, brake checking, flipping me off at the back part of the track where there were no cameras. <laughs> like, the whole nine yards. Tennessee's own Mike stuff. Brown. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell is this guy's problem? So I'm heated. Right. And um, right. so I end up smashing into him on purpose to just try and get him back. But he was quicker than me, so... He was almost taunting me, if it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But I, I decided right there and then I didn't lo- not like this guy. And, um, you know, I was going to come tooth and nail. I was going to fight this guy to the very end. Well, then it wasn't shortly after that, Dob um, straight up T-boned me at a race. He acts dumb and says he didn't, but he straight T-boned me. <laughs> and um, It was hard, yeah. The- it was intense. It was probably the best best thing he ever did because I hated him from that day on. Hated him, and uh, I took a swing at him after the race and Jeez. talked some mad smack. Oh, the, every, the, the quotes in Cycle News were great. Every single weekend, you three guys going after each other in the press yeah. and everything. Yeah, it was intense. Well, well the, the worst part was, like I said, I remember Kurt Nicker was was giving Jamie a bit of a hug or high five. And I pulled up because I, I came from 40th to second. Mm-hmm. I just ran out of time. 
So I come up and I punch Dub, and then Kurt gets in the middle, and they're British, and Kurt's running everything. And right. I remember calling Dub a British. Starts with a C and ends with a T. Right. And uh, and then I, I just lost it. I just absolutely lost it. Where every word out of my mouth was as vulgar and mean and 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 a swear word and uh-huh. everything. But I was just so heated. And the journalists were standing there with their recorders going, just catching all of this. <laughs> and um, so nice. Kurt came to me like afterwards, you need to calm down. And I was still heated. I'm like, F you and you and your British freaking yeah. entourage and you right. guys got each other's back. I'm like, F you, F you kind of attitude. And, sure, yeah. and I was heated, man. i tell you what. I, but I ride with a lot of aggression and a lot of, you know, passion. Yep. Um, so – don't come and talk to me when I'm still in that moment because you're not going to get much progress out of me. <laughs> and um, so I just said, I hate these guys. I come, I, like, I'm not going to pass them. I'm going to hit them out of the way. And it became a bit of a slugfest throughout the season. Um, Brown and Dobb got into it several times. Yeah. I got into it with Brown. I got into it with Dobb. I was standing on the podium, you know. And then when anyone said, oh, you know, I saw you guys having a battle, I just... They were standing next to me on the podium, and I would just talk crap about them <laughs> right next to them. Just, yeah. I think I said it with Dobb. I said, he's a, he's a loser. He's never won anything. He never will. Right. Um, and I'll make sure that he doesn't win, and, you know, Dude, I'll even hey, any chance I get. In 01, when you're in America and Dobb wins the title finally, you tell everybody, he's only winning because everybody moves out of the class. I hope he should win finally. <laughs> well, he said, well, that's because in his interview, he said, oh, if Langston and Brown were here, I still would have won. And I'm yeah. like, you're delusional, bro. <laughs> like, I was 17 smoking you. I'm only getting faster. I'm only getting better. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was intense. Uh, we would we would follow it. And Cycle News, and I'm at KTM that year, so we're all into it, you know. Um, at, at any point in that season, do they say, hey, if you win, you can go to USA? Do you say I'm going to USA no matter what? Did you have to win the title to come over, or no. what was the deal? I started—I don't know—I started making predictions and then started backing them up, and then I honestly probably was a little arrogant and cocky, like people get. But I just told KTM. Well, KTM were obviously trying to keep me because they knew that I was getting—I yeah. was getting offers from. Actually, Honda to go 250. I was getting offers from Husqvarna. Mitch, right? Wasn't Mitch sniffing around too? Well, Mitch tried to get me, and that was. I originally thought I might be riding for Mitch Payton in the U.S., and then basically KTM kind of, you know, well, really couldn't. Here's, here's a blank check. Here's, here's a blank check, kid. We're keeping you. Fill it out. Yeah, and it wasn't even so much that. It was like they had first right of refusal. They matched the offer, and it came down to I thought it would be better to go with KTM to the to the U.S. because I knew most of the people were bringing over a few people. Like, you remember Harry Knoll? Yeah, I just saw him in Italy. Then, yep, yep. Yeah, my uncle was going to be able to be my mechanic. So it just felt a little more of a um, um, natural stepping stone. It wasn't as big of a jump as going to someone like Mitch Payton where you arrive with your gear bag again and go, yeah. hi, nice to meet you guys. You right. know, it was more like, hey, we know half the people. We've worked together. So... And plus, with the success I had with KTM, I didn't feel that there was any other reason, well, there was no reason we couldn't do the same in the U.S., right. which was go and dominate. 
until I found out about this thing called the production rule. So that changed things a little bit. <laughs> it did. Did you? So you had your deal done to come over before you won the world I title? I had my deal be- before I won the world championship because my dad even said, what if you get hurt tomorrow? I yeah. said, too bad, then I guess I'm not a world champion. He's oh, like, yeah, that's really, huh? dream. Okay. And yeah. I said, well, yeah. well, when I was a kid, when I said I want to be a world champion, that means the best guy in the world. I said, if I didn't win the world title but was a U.S. national champion, that's good enough for me. Um, but I had just decided that America was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Supercross. I wanted to be mm-hmm. racing AMA. I wanted to follow in Albertine's footsteps. And just from being in America, just – you know, it's crazy as some people may think it sounds. The transition from South Africa to America is not that big a deal. No. Especially California. No. Um, the, trans- the transformation from South Africa to Europe was much more of a bigger jump for me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So it was Europe was a great foundation and stepping stone and appreciation for racing and, and uh, you know, learning so much. And um, that would have never happened in the U.S., in my opinion, Um we didn't have, you know, it wasn't like I was in a position to be an amateur to hopefully get a factory ride. It was basically we had to get a ride and then roll the dice that one day you're going to get paid right, right. for that ride. Um, when do you clinch the title? Where and when? I actually remember this day very clearly because it was obviously very special. But yeah. um, it was the penultimate round. So the round 16 was in Germany, but round 15 was in Heinola, Finland. Okay. And uh, it's the only, only time I've ever been to Scandinavia, and it was one of the first times I actually was flown to a GP, didn't drive. Uh-huh. So I kind of felt like I'd arrived as well. But anyway, we get to Finland, and, and it's just one of those tracks that's just got my name written all over it. So Like, like light, sandy, rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's just, I look at this, I'm like, ah. Oh. Hey, on a side note, on a side note for people, we'll get into this. We're going to do a part two because we don't have enough time, but I want to. Millville, your first year at Millville, I will never forget this. You walked the track, or I don't know what I don't know what happened, but you went, saw the track, came back to us in the truck and said, one one boys, I got this. I like this track. And we're like, uh yeah, whatever. Okay. And sure enough, that's exactly what you did. Um we're like, well, I guess he was right. I guess he really does like this track. Well the so, worst part was ask Mitch Payton about this one. Not only do I'm, I'm not riding for him, so I've turned him down in a nice way, mm-hmm. but now it's gotten heated during the season yeah. between the rivalry between Brown and myself. Yeah. I tell his team, I see them at a hotel. Um, shoot, I forget where it was. I think it was Washougal off the race. And I went and I said, hey, tell your boss, don't even bother taking the truck all the way back east from Washougal to Minnesota. <laughs> um because I'm going to win, just so you know. I mean, I'm going to, like, wax your guys, like, really bad. Like, I can just tell. So I'm just doing you a favor. Save the gas money. Don't go. Well, they went and told Mitch. He was so mad. He still says to this day, he goes, that's going to be one of those moments in my career where I've never been so mad. And I'm like, he's like, I told the guys, whatever, over my dead body, we're going to let this punk win. And he goes, hey, you freaking smoked everyone yeah, i don't remember I it even so being angry didn't you take your hand off in the mechanics area the first lap yeah I was, I, yeah i was waving at the mechanics second motor just i think just you i think you were just like hey I'm, i got this later um anyways so finland you walk the track and just like millville you're like i got this yeah i think i only needed i uh, i forget what it was but 
it was one of those if Dob won, I needed like fourth in the first moto. Uh-huh. So yeah, it wasn't so first, it wasn't a big thing for you to get it, get the points you needed. No, 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 no. Basically I've got like a seventy seven point lead and there's only a hundred points available type mm-hmm. thing, if it makes sense. So anyway, first moto I go out. I was fastest in every practice, qualifying, warm up. Well actually the funny part was my dad and my uncle and everyone was so nervous. My dad couldn't sleep, so he went for a long walk at five in the morning. And, <laughs> and my uncle's like stripping bolts with his quadruple checking everything. Right. Well, no Andrew. one forgot to wake me up, so I end up sleeping in. And uh, so, like, guys are riding down to the start line for practice. And I get door opens, my dad comes in, and he's like full panic. Oh my gosh, practice is starting. So I literally. <laughs> Roll out of bed, throw my gear on, don't eat or drink a single thing, and go down, put in a couple laps, and I'm like a second and a half quicker than anyone. Ride back to the pits. My dad's actually almost irritated because I didn't do enough practice in his mind. Mm-hmm. I said, trust me, I've got this. And it was just a beautiful day because first moto, I get the whole shot, and I just start pulling away. And it just seemed like there weren't a lot of – Finnish guys there. But anyway, I felt like I had a lot of the local crowd behind me and mm-hmm. the KTM fans. And even even a lot of people from Holland and, and KTM supporters made the trip up there. They rented a couple buses. You know, the fans there are a little bit different. So I had a full supporter crew there. And it was quite crazy because then on the last lap, I'm going to wave at everyone. I'm thinking everyone I've been waving or has been cheering me is not here. And uh, came over the finish down the hill and it's just this mass of people on the start straight, and they've all got champagne and, and air horns and chainsaws. Oh, that's cool. and yeah, yeah. There's this massive banner that's been stitched together, and, and I just remember that feeling pulling up, and it just was so, so surreal. And my dad and my uncle like are hugging me, and they start crying and champagne spraying, and you know, it's just yeah. people always talk about that moment, but it, it was it was absolutely mind blowing, and it's it just kept seeming surreal, you know, you know, even my dad said, you know, you've done it, you know, you yeah, did it. You did. Like this is, and you talked about this since you were five. And in know? two and years, like, only in two years too, which is like, you look at Coppins who actually never got a title or even Albie. It took him a lot longer than two years, two years. And you were champion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was my third year that I won. Yeah. I okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, sorry, Kawasaki, that was my rookie year, went from not qualifying to getting points. Year two went from basically kind of being a top 10 guy to podium to winning and, and finishing in the top 10. And then in 2000, basically being a considered a dark horse, like a you know, very right. outside chance of winning. Like people are like, yeah, this kid's going to win some motos, but he'll crash and whatever. Yeah. It'd be like saying, you know, if the second half of the season was a championship for our outdoors right now, it would be like saying, I think Faulkner's going to win the championship. Right, right. And you're like, well, you know, he's got some talent, but he doesn't have the package. And then, you know, kind of happens. So rips it, it off, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's an old saying, you know, it's the first time to get a win or a podium or qualify, whatever, it's always the hardest. And once you've done it, you start believing that's where you belong and who you are and what you expect. Um so yeah, uh, basically in two in less than in in less than two years, I went from not qualifying to winning a race, and in about two and a half years, I went from not qualifying to being world champion. And then you're like, thank God, I never got to deal with Mike Brown ever again. 
<laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. I'll never see that idiot again. Well, then well then the thing was, I turned down Mitch Payton to come to the States with KTM, and guess who signed with oh, Mitch Payton? Mike Brown. Mike Brown. Um, well, hey, GL, look, let's do a part two and cover your U.S. career. Uh, there's so much more to talk about as far as your time in, in 01 at KTM when I was there with, with K. Smith and, uh, and Yamaha and Pro Circuit, and, and I got a shit ton more questions. We got to get to the bottom of the Bobby Bonds incident. We got to get to the bottom of that. <laughs> um, and uh, so let's do another uh, Motorcycle Superstore Racer X online podcast uh, maybe next week, um, and uh, we'll do a part one and a part two. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. I was about to say, actually, part two would be pretty close to starting off almost with the Bobby Bonds yeah. Uh, scenario. Yeah, pretty, well, well, we'll cover Houston 125 Supercars main first. Oh, great. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, GL, thank you for your time, and uh, I'll see you this weekend at Millville. And, uh, yeah, we'll do another one of these uh, real soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks for listening, guys, and, yeah, thanks, Steve. All right. Chat soon. See ya. Bye. All right, cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Steve Mathis Show presented by Fox Racing. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. it was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Storbeck is that he never said sorry. Because Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and Miguel was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't have been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't have been there. The Hurricane, Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think yeah. he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Poland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? Right. They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home. And once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take the money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, like beating a dead horse, I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. Been no problem. My my ego got in the way, you know. The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could you sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. 
I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes store to enjoy these and over 800 great motocross podcasts. As the days and the months and the years go.